You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Navy Rear Admiral John Wade of the Red Hill Joint Task Force joined us in studio to talk about the process of unpacking fuel currently sitting in the Red Hill pipelines. Today, the focus out in the field will be on the diesel marine fuel that powers our military ships. The draining of the pipes was scheduled to begin by 9.30 this morning and will take at least two days. On Monday and Tuesday, the effort was on removing two types of aviation fuel, including 90,000 gallons of F-24 fuel. Yesterday, it was 200,000 gallons of JP-5. Admiral Wade is the commander tapped to defuel the tanks until the mission is complete. Here's Wade. Today is the big day. There's a, the preponderance of fuel in the pipelines is the F-76. So it'll be a two-day event today and tomorrow to get the, the fuel out. And then we'll have some events early next week as well. Is there a chance, though, that you could end early and do this all you know, before the six-day window that you've identified? There is a chance, but as I have committed and, you know, on the record that we're going to be very methodical, deliberate, safe. And so we have specific events for each day that we have trained to, we've rehearsed, we've briefed. And I really don't want to deviate from the plan because that adds risk. And uh, gosh, if there is a problem with the jet fuel, and, uh, and the bulk of it, you said, is uh, the marine diesel. Yes. I don't know. As far as pathways, you know, uh, spills, uh, you know, what, are we taking additional precautions with this particular type of fuel? We are. So, you know, we built this plan in conjunction with a third-party engineering firm to give us another set of eyes. And then we worked collaboratively with the Department of Health, the state regulator, and then the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level to ensure that this was approved. They not only looked at our procedures for removing the fuel, but also our procedures for a response if we had a spill. And not only, you know, those procedures, but then what actions and mitigations to prevent, if we had a spill, the fuel from getting into the aquifer. So this has been a very lengthy but important process. Why it's taken time, but uh, we're trying to reduce risk to the greatest extent possible. And the diesel fuel that you are um, unpacking, does that go directly to uh, Hilo Pier, Hotel Pier? So it'll be gravity drained down to the waterfront at the pier there into a barge and then will then be pumped into the tanks in and around the water area so then we can consume that fuel and and fuel our ships as they conduct their operations and training. Okay, but we've taken all the additional safeguards to make sure there are no additional leaks in the piping system there at that pier because that has been a problem in the past. Yes. We've inspected those piers, those fittings, and we also have safety observers at all points and with radios. Uh, we've, we've taken precautions necessary to ensure this is a safe evolution. Okay. So after next week, you know, given the six-day period, and if you're successful in, in um, unpacking all of the fuel that's in there, how much time will there be before you can actually start draining any of those tanks? To answer that, I, can I just go a little bit bigger picture? Because I've received this question quite a bit, and uh, I want to just highlight the, the process here. So, you know, the, the state came out with the emergency stop order first in December and then updated it in May. And it gave some, some specific direction. One was to have a third-party engineering firm come in and to look at the entire complex, not just the pipelines, but the pumps and the gauges and structural foundations, the, the tanks themselves, and do an assessment on you know what needs to be done to reduce risk when we defuel the facility. So that, that's complete. The second phase was to then take that assessment and then merge it into a complete list of repairs, which the first list of repairs was submitted in June. But the National Defense Authorization Act also mandated an, an assessment from the tunnel exit area to both Hickam and also to the piers to ensure that those pipelines were safe too. So that assessment was just completed a few weeks ago, and we merged all these repair items 
into a consolidated list that was submitted to the Department of Health on the 24th of October. So, you know, th this has been, again, a deliberate process, but important. So once that is done and we finish our unpacking, our focus is now going to be on implementing actions to make sure that we're safe. So we'll, we'll do these repairs, these enhancements and modifications. Meanwhile, we'll be working very closely with the Department of Health and EPA to get the defueling plan approved. It's not yet approved. It's with the Department of Health and they're reviewing it. Once that's approved, we're going to do iterative planning in partnership with the Department of Health and the EPA to find ways to move the timeline left. Right now, the defueling will be complete by June of 2024. Every day that the fuel is above the aquifer is a concern for me. It's a threat to the people of Hawaii, our community, the environment. So I want to work in partnership to see what we can do. Are there, is there new technology that can be applied? Is there any way we could do things in, in parallel instead of series? So we'll, we'll work that to try to move that timeline left. And then once we have this approved plan, we're going to train. And we're going to train hard. And we're going to rehearse. And then once all conditions are met, then we'll execute our final preps to ensure and recheck two, three times. And then we'll start the execution. There's been the defueling plan has been submitted and the list of repairs. Okay. So, that, you know, I've spoken to Dr. Char and Ms. Ho. They are working very hard. They understand how important this is, too. But they have, you know, state law that they must comply with, and they have to work with the EPA, the federal level. So they're working this aggressively. In fact, I'll probably speak to Ms. Ho later today, give her an update on the unpacking. It's a team sport for sure. You know. I received a question at our press conference the other day, and the question was, well, why isn't the Department of Health member of your task force? Well, they're not because they have regulatory, you know, obligations by law, but we are working closely and collaboratively with them at the leadership level and at the staff level to get after these important efforts. On the repairs, uh, you know, when you did have that rupture of the piping system, my understanding was that it damaged um, the lines into, I think it was 18 and 20, so that you're not able to defuel those until you can replace the, the piping. So is that part of the repair plan, or has that already gone out? The repair plan is comprehensive. It includes, you know, some repairs to the pipes, but also monitoring sensors that will detect pressure fluctuations. We've got to get to a point where we can reduce risk to the greatest extent possible. Again, this third-party engineering firm with lots of experience provided this assessment per the emergency uh, stop order. And uh, now we're going through it with a fine-tooth comb to say, okay, well, what can we do faster, but within the bounds of safety and within federal and state law? Okay. Anything else you, you want to add? So far, so good. And then it just may be a while then before we start draining one of those tanks. It will be a while. Uh, we won't start draining, as the plan is right now, until late 23 or early 2024. Again, my commitment is to try to move that timeline left. Now, you know, the original plan that the Navy had submitted was to be complete by December of 24. And they were able to move the timeline left by six months by looking at the actual defueling itself, but also the, uh, cutting shorter the repair timeline. So we're going to keep after this because it's so important. Do you, is there any section of the pipeline that, you know, needs to be totally replaced or is it just a matter of tightening up the valves? It, no pipelines need to be totally replaced. And just to let you know, once the marine diesel, for example, is removed, those pipes within the facility, the three-mile tunnel, we're not even going to use those pipes because we can defuel using other pipes, and, and that saves us time because the marine diesel pipes are like 36 inches in diameter. Huge. And so we were able to shave off time by not having to do any of those repairs, and they won't even be used for the defueling. So we're looking at every opportunity to save some time here. And, and those are buttoned down? I mean, they're, they're in good shape? Once the diesel fuel is out of those pipes, they're not even going to be used anymore. I don't know. Anything else that you think would be important to stress to our listeners just about this process? And for the unpacking? Yeah. Well, we're taking it, again, very methodically and deliberately. Safety is our priority. 
And, you know, we've got the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Health with us providing oversight as we execute. We're grateful of the support. We're one-third of the way through, and we've just got to stay at it, stay focused, and uh, execute safely, and then we can proceed to the next phases that I described. What about community input? A number of groups have asked to sit at the table. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if it's appropriate for them to sit at the um, task force level. Mm-hmm. Where are you at on that? Well, community outreach is a critical part of my mission, and I'm doing it in a number of ways. First is through the media. And you have to understand that the task force was officially stood up on the 30th of of September when the Secretary of Defense was here. My first focus was in introductions to all the key stakeholders, so our elected officials at the federal, state, and the local level, and then all interagency partners, and then using the media as a conduit to reach the public. Admiral Wade says he is planning a town hall meeting in November as the one-year anniversary of the fuel contamination is just around the corner. Wade is also planning to stand up a forum to include a diverse spectrum of community members. He has a list of about a dozen people so far. Wade, who lives on base at Pearl Harbor, was here on island during the height of the fuel contamination and said even to his own family, the experience was very confusing. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we'll ask you how much you know about a Hollywood actor from Hawaii who hails from Kaimuki. He attended Palolo Elementary and Jarrett Intermediate Schools and graduated from Mid-Pacific Institute. Following a year at Syracuse University, he moved to London for two years to train in Shakespearean theater at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. After returning to the U.S., he appeared in over 35 Hollywood films with credits such as Rosemary's Baby, Death Becomes Her, and The Return of Charlie Chan. He also appeared in TV series ranging from Magnum P.I. and Hawaii Five-0 to Night Court and Candace Bergen's Murphy Brown. Not limited to the big or small screen, he was on stage in the original Broadway production of Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures. Today, we want to know... Who was this actor? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right scores a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Our 2022 general election coverage continues today with Congressman Ed Case, who is running for re-election. He faces political newcomer Conrad Kress next month. Case sits on the House Committee of Appropriations and on the Committee for Natural Resources and pushed to get additional funding to begin closing the underground fuel facility at Red Hill. Uh, Representative Case says he has met Admiral Wade of the task force and actually was on tour with him uh, at Red Hill about two weeks ago. I think things are going well so far. 
I mean, they are navigating a very tricky path to get things done in a timely and a safe way. I believe that the Joint Task Force was exactly the right thing to do. They needed to get everything coordinated under one person, one responsibility. That was part of the problem to start with was, you know, too many fingers in the pie and not enough coordination. So the fact that they put one person in charge was exactly the right decision. I thought that he was the right choice. I think he is very capable and very motivated, and I think he understands the severity and uh, magnitude of not only the challenge, but of regaining public trust. And so, so far, so good. I think he's making the right decisions. Obviously, my job is to make sure that they are made and that they're funded. I expect that this joint task force, in one way, shape, or form, is going to include the community viewpoints, and so that there's a very direct communication line between the broader community and, and what the joint task force is doing. Each of them needs to know what the other is thinking and doing and, and needs to be very aware of the total you know, situation. And I think that Admiral Wade understands that. I, I talked directly with him about that. I definitely expressed to him the concern of the community that they not be excluded. I took him at his word that he was going to find a way to include them. Right now, the community is communicating. They are listening. I believe that they were heading in the direction of a more formal role for community voices, but I don't know where they are right now. But I think it's pretty clear that they are listening to the community. And certainly, from my perspective, the community has a direct pipeline into my office. I'm listening to the community, and, and I'm not hearing any major areas of concern so far. So I'm also fulfilling my role in this in this department to be the focus of community concerns and, and to make sure that those are communicated clearly to the Navy. And I'm hearing generally, so far, so good. And you sit on both the Appropriations and Natural Resources Committees uh, for the House. I mean, uh, it just seems on this issue... You know, you've got an interest in funding whatever it takes to defuel Red Hill safely and then whatever we need to do to make sure that our aquifer is protected. Correct. This has been a very consuming part of my responsibilities for well over a year now, especially in the last year as we saw the November leak last year. And, you know, 90 percent of what I've done over the last year has been through appropriations because it was critical and remains critical that this effort be fully funded. And we we were successful in that department. We got over $1 billion funded in the last fiscal year on an emergency basis on very, very short notice. And we also are supporting another $1 billion for the current fiscal year and more. And that's not going to be enough. So we're going to have to be at this for a long, long time. It's going to take a lot of money to go with a lot of effort to get Red Hill completely defueled, closed, and the fuel capacity relocated elsewhere. And the natural resource side is critical because in natural resources, obviously, we are directly focused on the environment, directly focused on clean water, on ocean water, and, and the entire gamut of environmental consequence from, from Red Hill. But there's a pretty direct overlap between my natural resources work and my appropriations work. Do you feel confident that the military has enough funding to deal with the wastewater issues and the uh, drinking water pipeline systems that you know we've had problems with? Well, first of all, they have enough money to do what they need to be doing right now, unpacking Red Hill, so to speak. So, in other words, draining the existing fuel out of the pipelines that was really uh, basically stopped in place during the leak last year. They have enough money, I believe, to actually defuel Red Hill. But what we don't have yet is the detail of the plan to proceed after depacking to full defueling and full closure. That plan is still, the final plan is still due from the Department of Defense. And once we get that plan, we'll be able to match up that plan with the financial capacity to carry it out. And we will need to provide the funding to carry it out. What are your thoughts uh, on uh, where we sit with the Jones Act? I mean, we just saw uh, the president, you know, give a waiver uh, to Puerto Rico so that fuel uh, could get to that community. Were you encouraged by that move? I was encouraged because it was and it was consistent with my own discussions with the White House, because not only do I have initiatives in Congress to revise and amend and apply the Jones Act in a different way when it comes to a, a captive shipping state like Hawaii and other parts of our country that are 
solely dependent on shipping such as Puerto Rico or Guam or some of the other island uh, jurisdictions, even Alaska, which is a non-contiguous state, of course. It's not connected to the continent, so it can't readily access trains and buses and the rest of the things that can be accessed on the continent if shipping gets into a monopolistic gouging price situation. So I had those legislative initiatives. I still do. I'm still pushing them. But the Ukraine war and the resulting energy crisis prompted request to the White House for a waiver to allow, by me, to allow for non-Jones Act ships to bring oil and gas from the continent to Hawaii if there was no way to get that oil and gas from elsewhere in the world on non-Jones Act shipping. And essentially, in so many words, the White House said, if you get into the situation where you really cannot get gas from the rest of the world, come back to us and we will seriously consider a waiver at that time. I took them at their word. And thus far, we've been able to access oil and gas from the rest of the world at comparable prices to domestic prices. Now, would we be better off if we did not have the Jones Act in place for shipping of oil and gas from the continent to Hawaii, even if we were getting it in the rest of the world? Of course we would. But the fact of the matter is that what the White House has said is, show us the real need and we'll consider it. So the fact that the White House actually gave the waiver in a very limited situation to Puerto Rico at least indicates to me that they understand the severity of the Jones Act as it's applied to an island jurisdiction, especially in an emergency. So, you know, I've got that card in my hand, and, and if I need to play it, I will. You talked about uh, the concern, you know, with rising costs. If the voters return you to office uh, next month, what more do you think you can do to help with the rising costs of energy and, and everything else? Well, I mean, you know, obviously inflation and the cost of living is number one, along with public safety. These are the top concerns that, that voters are focused on, and they should be focused on. And, and in all of these areas, Congress needs to deliver. This election in a few weeks is going to be about who voters think can deliver on those issues. For my part, I have delivered on all of these issues in my prior you know, service in Congress, including this last Congress. That's not over, of course. We've still got a bunch of stuff still to do. But in the next Congress, certainly on the public safety side, we've got to get a lot tougher on on our public safety laws at the national level. I have funded those public safety efforts through my appropriations committee to our local law enforcement communities. I just uh, talked with Chief Logan the other day about how these programs were working inside of HPD, how we could enhance them, how we could improve them. And then on inflation in particular on the national level, it is still a lot of different factors that came together in a very critical mass, many, many factors combining for inflation all kind of coming together in an unfortunately focused time. Number one, we have to avoid any further non-emergency massive federal spending, which pumps money into the economy in, out there that creates a very unbalanced uh, supply-demand situation, and that's what we have. We have a lot of people spending a lot of money that was left over from COVID-19 at a time that, number two, supply chains have been constrained across our country, across our world. So we've got kind of fewer goods out there with more money chasing them, and that has driven up prices. And so you've got to be very careful in terms of your federal spending if you don't need to be federally spending. And you also have to open up those supply chains. And to me, that's the biggest thing that we can do at the national level is continue to find the specific areas where the supply chains are frozen up, whether it be our ports, our highways, our manufacturing in this country, certainly our import policies, and get goods flowing out there again so that they're not being you know, there's not a shortage of them out there across the board. So that's a major area that I can focus on from an inflation perspective. If you come here to Hawaii, then there are specific cost drivers that I'm particularly focused on. We've already talked about the Jones Act. That's my primary one. That adds an incredible surcharge to everybody's costs here. That simply shouldn't be the case. Anything else you want to add just about Ukraine? And, you know, I know it's complicated, uh, everything with the supply chain issues and, and fuel and just well, the secret about you security. Know, we cannot let Russia prevail in Ukraine. It's that simple. Russia cannot prevail in Ukraine. Number one, it would be to effectively sanction the, the unprovoked, unjustified invasion of a, of a sovereign country by another sovereign country, and that, that cannot stand. But number two, we are in a very precarious world right now. We just saw, you know, the leader of China take a very, very strong hold on China. He has not shown himself or China has not shown itself to want to partner with most of the rest of the world in, in, in a coordinated approach to the world's issues. 
that is a concern. And, and as Russia is able to deal with Ukraine, you better believe that China is watching uh, to see what uh, lessons it can learn and what it can get away with. And so the stakes are very, very high in Ukraine. And, you know, like everybody else, I wish Russia hadn't invaded. The, the loss of life and, and the tragedy in, in Ukraine is, is overwhelming. I understand to some people that think, well, you know, what do we have at stake there? We have a lot at stake there. And so the fact is that we have to help Ukraine to prevail over Russia in Russia's invasion of Ukraine's own territory for a lot of different reasons. And that brings consequences with it. That does bring energy shortages that we must find a way to deal with, because the alternative is to say to Russia, well, OK, fine, you can get away with that because we because we want your oil. Well, that's exactly the wrong way to go about it. And that is going to be not going to be lost on other parts of our world, parts like Iran, which is highly problematic. And again, I'm back to China because Mm -hmm. here in Hawaii and in my work in Congress, from a foreign policy perspective, I always come back to China. That was uh, Hawaii Representative Ed Case, who was running to keep his U.S. congressional seat. Tomorrow, we'll hear from his Republican challenger, Conrad Kress. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Editor and general manager Patty Epler joins us to talk about a recent court ruling that forces the state to reveal the names of people who die in jail and prison. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, Catherine. So the story today is one that Kevin Dayton has been tracking. Um, yes, that this is the case. So Kevin has for many years followed um, what goes on in the state's prisons and jails. Um, and a couple of years ago, the state law changed to um, require uh, the Department of Public Safely, Safety to only release the um, information on people who die in prison to the governor's office and not release it publicly. Um, this was um, the state thinking that deaths were basically covered under HIPAA, you know, the, the health care law that um, requires uh, non-disclosure for privacy reasons. So it became very, very difficult to find out anything about people who, who die in prisons. So um, this went on for a couple of years. And so about a year ago, Civil Beat filed a lawsuit. Uh, and we were represented by Brian Black at the Civil Beat Law Center for the Public Interest. And um, just challenged that because it's just so important, you know, to have um, information about what goes on in the prisons and deaths is a very um, significant thing that we can look at. Kevin has used that to do um, stories on, uh, say, drug overdoses where drugs were flooded into the prisons or suicides, for instance, you know, a rash of suicides in different in different facilities. So we just felt it was really important to take on that challenge. And Kevin did just write up a story recently about another suicide at the Maui jail. He did. And and in order to get that information, he had to rely on sources uh, within the prison as well as family members. But um, but if you know, but I I think it's um, important because if someone doesn't have a family member on the outside who's watching out for them, they could just die in the prison and and no one would really even know that that happened, you know, and that that just seems really, you know, kind of sad and different, you know, Uh, not not a good thing. And, you know, the fact that they had suicide, six suicides at the at the Maui jail, you know, it flags a problem there with mental health services, I think. Uh, And, you know, I guess you look to, you know, what is done elsewhere? What are other states doing? So that's the other thing is that uh, many other states uh, 
don't have a HIPAA concern over the release of death records because it's not a medical treatment, right? It's just, or, or something that would, you know, go to that. It's just someone has died, someone has committed suicide, whatever, and they automatically release the info. So, um, so what Judge Tanaki ruled in our case was that the uh, state needs to turn over the records that we requested, which was the uh, records from two, 2021 and 2020, I mean, yeah, 2020 and 2021. But now we have to go back and ask for 2022. And in the future, we'll have to ask, I guess, like every week, did anyone die in prison? And can you tell us, you know, about that? Um, we're hoping for a legislative solution. Apparently, the Corrections Commission wants to take this up with the legislature to make it kind of an automatic thing. When someone dies, it's announced. And it's not just the name, right? You're also asking for the autopsy? Yes, we want we want to see exactly what happened as, to the extent that we can. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Patty. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate it. That was editor Pat, Patty Epler with today's reality check. To read Kevin Dayton's full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Kumu Kahua Theater's comedy, Lucky Come Hawaii. Set in 1941, love evens the balance between American GIs, local Japanese, and West Maui Okinawans. Opens November 3rd, kumukahua.org. Most of us try to avoid situations that make us nervous. But we know that anxiety and negative and difficult emotions only are amplified when we avoid it or we steamroll over them. A different way to think about anxiety, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Two new tours, Music and Painting and The Ephemeral Bloom, provide insight and context around works in the permanent collection and special exhibitions. HonoluluMuseum.org slash tours. Remember that beloved childhood book, The Giving Tree? It was one of my favorites, and it's that concept that Doug Brunner says he fell in love with. Brunner is the owner of Maui Plumeria Gardens in Haiku. Today, as part of Plumeria Week, we highlight the export business of Plumeria cuttings. But you never thought about that, since many in the islands grew up with these as backyard blooms and easily made their local favorite that classic, fragrant Plumeria lay. Here's Brunner. Well, interestingly, we do actually very little business or in the past have done little business in Hawaii. As you may know, the flowers, the blooms, plumeria blooms do not last very long. And it's rather labor intensive to pick the flowers. So we've focused our business on selling plumeria cuttings and rude plants and seeds, mostly to people that are on the mainland, although that mix is kind of shifting with our new farm that we've started in Waikapu. But there is a very large Plumeria community on the mainland and actually all throughout the world, collectors that collect all different varieties, colors, scents of Plumeria, and they share their passion on Facebook groups and Instagram and all different social media sites, and people are really into it, kind of like uh, orchids were maybe 20 to 30 years ago. They used to be rare, and now you can find Plumeria at Costco, Home Depot, and Lowe's on the mainland. Whereas still in Hawaii, for whatever reason, they, they, they're not selling it in those places. So every once in a while, Lowe's and Home Depot will have it. But 
typically it's just the white color. And there are so many fantastic varieties out there that it keeps growing every year. I'm amazed to see just the the hybrids that they're coming up with these days. I mean, they're oh, just yeah. brilliant. And, you know, it's like with hibiscus, you know, learning the history and then seeing the reach. You know, I mean, plumerias aren't, aren't native to Hawaii, but, you know, there is probably some cachet about, you know, getting a plumeria from the islands here. Oh, yes. Yes, that's certainly true. I, it, I think it does help that um, we're growing them on Maui and, you know, people associate the flower with Hawaii, but you're right, it is indigenous to Mexico, and a number of varieties were brought out in the 50s to Hawaii, and there was a, a group of people on Oahu that had have hybridized plumeria, and a lot of those varieties are still very popular throughout the plumeria world. So tell us about your best sellers. Oh, our best sellers are probably the, the they're the most hardy plants because people a lot there are a lot of first time growers and they'll always they'll say you know we live in the northwest um, it gets cold in the winter what what type of hardy varieties do you have and uh, the hardy varieties are just the thicker cuttings that uh, tend to withstand cooler temperatures a little bit better uh, you know most of our customers treat plumeria as a house plant they'll bring it outdoors in the summer and then they'll bring it indoors in in the winter so they're looking for thicker varieties. Lay Rainbow is a beautiful variety. It's got yellow, orange, and a hint of white to the flower. The most popular is probably uh, the Celadine, which is often used in hula shows and hula dances. It's the yellow flower with the white edges on it. And then some of our hybrids have been really popular with collectors. So we've grown plumeria from seed where we've pollinated flowers, taking pollen from one source and depositing it into flower head and creating a seed pod which we then planted and it creates a variety that no one has ever seen before and some of those popular ones are orange crush and king crimson the the names are fabulous <laughs> yes they I, really are i just remember uh, when i saw a plumeria plant in st louis at my in-laws and they, and, and you know they said oh yeah we we put it out in the summer we take it in for the winter and it, it just never dawned on me that plumerias would be in those climates i mean you know you see all the cuttings you know um for the tourists to take home right at yeah. the airport or at longs but i i guess you know for all of us who live here you know we just know plumerias you know the backyard tree or or your your neighbor's tree uh that you can uh, go pick flowers you know to make a fresh lay well I, I think you're you're right and that one of the reasons why the business might not be quite as strong in hawaii is that people can just go to their neighbor's trees and get a cutting from that tree rather than go out and purchase it because they do grow so freely here whereas you know on the mainland it's a bit more unique although as i mentioned those plumeria groups are very strong in the southern states california arizona texas and florida they they have a, no, a large number of trees and a large number of growers, too, that are, are basically um, doing very similar things. You know, and as, but, I, um, as I drive around, you know, I see a, a lot of old trees, uh, and then I see some uh, shrubs. You know, I don't know if they're miniature uh, or what, but, you know, it's just interesting to see the variety. Yes, very different growth patterns on, on a number of the different varieties. Although all, almost all of them will grow to, to be 20-foot trees if just left to, to their own. Although they can be trimmed to just about any height. They're very hardy trees. They grow like weeds here in Hawaii, in fact. Take the leaves off, yep, and then plant, it, plant the cuttings. It's, so it's just like the giving tree. Talk about your expansion. Well, I'm very excited about that. So our first farm was in Haiku, and Haiku where we are in Haiku gets about 80 inches of rain, which is actually a little bit wet for plumeria. Plumeria really thrive in hot and dry conditions. They do need water, but they, they like the heat during the day, and they certainly like the sun. So our expansion is over in Waikapu, which is just outside of Wailuku. And this is on farmland that was old Hawaii cane and sugar land. And it's in, in an ideal growing area just below the King Kamehameha Golf Course. It is hot and dry, as I mentioned. The soil, the ocean used to flow from the North Shore to the South Shore in there. So it's some of the most fertile soil on Maui. And uh, we're, we're close enough to all the other activity on Maui that will be open for tours and for people to make lays and 
eventually sell cuttings off of that out of that location. But um, we're probably another year away from from doing a lot of that. Every year we keep expanding. Actually, so we just finished 12 acres and we're about to break ground on another 10 acres that's adjacent to it. In all, we're, we're just a little over 20 acres with all of our farms put together. So where are you in the rankings? Are you one of the larger uh, plumeria farms in the state? Um, well, we do a lot of volume. We So we sell mostly cuttings, not the root plants. And by selling cuttings, we're able to keep our price point fairly low. And so we're certainly one of the earlier businesses starting in 2001. We had an online business back then when, you know, there were still some online stores, but they, they weren't as prolific as they are now. I'd say we're definitely in the top five, maybe in the top three, certainly in terms of volume. There's a, a large outfit out of California that uh, imports a lot of their plumeria from Thailand, and then they cuttings from Thailand and they, they grow them and they sell to Lowe's and Home Depot. So we're not targeting those markets. We're targeting more the retail business. So they're probably the largest. We're probably number three, I guess. Well, so where, where is that one located? Um, they are in, I believe, Vista, California. Their, their business is uh, called Jungle Jacks. And so as far as the Plumeria farms locally? Jim Little Farms on Oahu is a large Plumeria business. And then you know, I'd say we're like, we're probably like right in there one, one and two. And there are some other people that sell plumeria at Swap Meat here on Maui, but they're not, they're not major growers. They just do the, the local sales. Okay. So trees, although they do grow fast, to be able to take cuttings from a tree, you do need a, at least four to five years of growth. And ideally, it's more like eight to 10 years of growth because you can look at a plumeria tree, it looks like it has a, branch, a lot of branches, but once you start looking at how many 15 to 18 inch branches can I cut off of this tree, you know, it might be uh, 100 or 200, well that goes pretty quick and then you don't have a tree anymore, you have to wait <laughs> another couple of years for those branches to grow back. You need space to what? really be able to do do some volume. What is it about and, a plumeria that you love so much? You know, what got you into the business? Uh, I, you know, I think I was most fascinated by the fact that you can trim. Well, they're beautiful flowers. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. And and I find myself walking around my farm just amazed at, at the blooms that I've been looking at for 20 years because they are just they're just so incredibly beautiful. The scents are just overpowering on most varieties. There are a few that don't have heavy scents, but then they have other unique characteristics like the, the corkscrew shape or uh, frilly edges. What really drew me to Plumeria is the fact that you can take a branch, take a cutting of the tree, and then a new cutting will grow right below the, the branch that you just took. So it's it, you're not depleting the tree, it's just continuing to give you more and to, to, to grow, and then you can cut it again and cut it again. So once you plant the trees, it's kind of a one-time um, a, a one-time thing, and mm -hmm. then that tree just keeps giving up for years and years after that. The giving tree. We've been hearing from Doug Brunner, owner of Maui Plumeria Gardens. He was talking about his business exporting plumeria cuttings around the world. Today's Backyard Quiz, uh, we asked you about a highly respected Hollywood character actor from Honolulu. While he's best known for his many roles, he played across all genres, from stage to movies to television. What you may not know is the strong dedication that he had to the movement of Asian representation in the performing arts. Long before the discussion about representation was mainstream, the multifaceted actor from Hawaii was a, a key founding member of the Association of Asian Pacific American Artists, which advocated for more realistic depictions of Asians in the media. Who was this actor? Well, our very own Ernest Harada. Once Harada returned to Hawaii, audiences were fortunate to see him at Manoa Valley Theater and live on stage at the Hawaii Yacht Club with his spouse and accompanist Don Conover. 
Harada passed away in Honolulu in 2019 at the age of 74. Thanks to listener uh, Gerald uh, Takisono for submitting today's quiz. Uh, and congrats to our backyard quiz winner, Steve Kramer. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, uh, share it. Right to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Broadway and Hawaii, Mason, and the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Richard Strozzi Heckler. I'm author of Embodying the Mystery. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about somatic wisdom for emotional, energetic, and spiritual awakening. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Thirty-two years ago this month, the United States military stopped using the island of Kaho'olawe for bombing exercises. We're bringing you voices from that time as part of a project with the University of Hawaii at Manoa Center for Oral History focused on the stories of resilience. The movement that led to the bombing halt on Kaho'olawe led to the rebirth of Aloha Aina, a deep love and respect for land and nature. That spirit has played a role in current developments in protests from Mauna Kea to Red Hill, or Kapukaki. Today, UH Ethnic Studies professor Tai Kavikatengan shares the stories of three Native Hawaiian leaders talking about their connection to Kaho'olawe and Aloha Aina. The late Colette Machado represented Molokai and Lanai with the Office of Hawaiian Affairs for 24 years. She served on many state boards and commissions but her heart was in grassroots community organizing and advocacy with the Proteko Ho'olawe Ohana and Molokai groups at the forefront of keeping Molokai Molokai. She was known for her honesty and fearless commitment to the wisdom of our Hawaiian kupuna and is fondly remembered for her generosity and aloha for Ohana and the people of Molokai. What drew me to the movement was you had an island that was neglected. You had an island that had a contemporary history with a loss of lives with George Harmon, Kimo Mitchell. You had a philosophy, an approach about Aloha Aina. You had cultural acknowledgement with archaeological sites as being critical. And then we were fighting a David and Goliath battle with the military and the federal government. So all of this struck a chord in what Hawaiians were being faced with. I think the major lessons learned is how precious land is, how valuable the word stewardship is associated with aloha aina. A lot of people look at aloha aina as just caring, but it's beyond the care. It's a lifetime of caring, which is that's where stewardship comes in. It's a commitment for a lifetime. It's not going to disappear in 10, 20 years. It's going to be with you for a lifetime, Emetomi hey, you know we're gonna be the next kupuna, and we were young then. So to me, the Aloha Aina movement brought in stewardship, and this is what kaha'olawe means to everyone. We are being trained to be kupunas of the land. Martha Evans was a teacher and school administrator in Lanai who witnessed the bombing of kaha'olawe from across the channel and got involved in the Aloha Aina movement to protect kaha'olawe with others from her island. She continues to work tirelessly to protect the Hawaiian heritage of Lanai as a member of Lanaians for Sensible Growth and the Lanai Culture and Heritage Center. 
Aloha aina. It is at the core of who we are, yeah? He ali'i ka aina, he kawa ke kamaka. If we want to continue to thrive as a people, as a nation, we have to take care of our land. We have to take care of one another. When we, through our indecisiveness and our carelessness, allow things to happen like deforestation because of introduction of non-native species and diverting streams that used to flow because we want to build streets and blasting reefs so that we can change the way that the place looks so we can make a nice resort with White Sand Beach. When we build houses that go right up to the high water mark and we build seawalls and all those kinds of things, the land is had it and the ocean comes and Tutupele comes and says, that's enough. And what can we do? I think the Aloha Aina movement has helped us to put things into perspective and to understand that we cannot continue to take advantage of what we have. It's a reciprocal relationship and we need to care for each other. And that balance was there before and we need to get the balance back again. Kaho'olawe is the reason why all of these issues can be looked at in a different lens. Dr. John Osorio is the Dean of the UH Manoa Hawaii Nuiakea School of Hawaiian Knowledge and a renowned historian and musician. When he received the inaugural George Helm Leo Aloha Aina Nahoku Hanohano Award in 2022, his Kegi Heoli recited the names of nearly four dozen people who embodied Aloha Aina. Here, he places Kaho'olawe within this Mo'oku Auhau. Kaho'olawe is a place that also sheltered our people in difficult times. It was more of a shelter than it was an exile. It was a place for our people to live. And I like the notion that Kaho'olawe has attracted to her over all of these last 40 years, people who really had felt themselves distanced from this huge American culture that is, you know, seated itself in our islands. Those who have been disaffected, those who have been even cast aside. It has brought them and made us whole. It has turned us into better versions of ourselves, I think. I am not much of a scholar of traditional or ancient Hawaiian music, but I do know that songs have been written about Kaho'olawe that celebrate her existence really as the youngest in our moku auhau of islands, having come last and being essentially the sheltered one, the protected one. And I think that that's kind of the way I've always seen the island is, as an island that we stopped protecting at some point and had to learn how to do this again. And in doing this, the island protects us. It makes us better, makes us braver, more courageous, more sacrificing. It's been an amazing thing. Those were the voices of Colette Machado, Martha Evans, and John Osorio with UH Ethics Professor Tai Kavikatengan. It's part of HBR's continuing project with the UH Manoa Center for Oral History. The project is supported by the SHARP Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. That is it for today. Up tomorrow, we take you out to visit a plumeria grove in a public garden out in East Honolulu. Got questions or comments about anything you heard on our air? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 